there are those poets, reporters, authors of books, think PC books that make money, uh, who call today the age of anxiety. These decades and this century, the age of anxiety, an age where fear is our predominant emotion. Sounds right to me. Some days sounds right to me. Some weeks. We have a lot of feelings, a lot of ways we enter the world, but I do find myself hearing about and feeling fear a lot in this world and time that we've created together. It's certainly true that this is the age of anxiety in the most literal of senses. Thousands and millions of people are diagnosed with the illness anxiety more than at any other point, right? And that anxiety drives um, spirals of shame or obsessive thoughts or worry about what will happen next. We also have a lot of fear, fear and anxiety from the real things that are happening in the world that seem to be so dangerous to some of us or to all of us. The shootings this week of black men that remind us that we still live in a racist society that is tipped towards some and away from others and that that tipping leads to death. The shootings of five police and transit officers in Dallas that reminds us that violence is still too often the way of the world, that hatred dictates outcomes, and that there are people whose lives are filled with risk for service. There are things to be afraid of in the world. And then there's the fact um, that we live in a world where technically, right, we're probably safer than we ever have been, ever in the history of humanity, and yet somehow everything just feels a little scarier. We see it in the way that our, you know, magnificent but puny and strange human brains estimate the way we should fear the things around us, the way that we get so scared about a plane flight and consider getting on the highway to be no big deal when we're much more likely to be harmed in a car than on a plane. It's in the way that our society has chosen to think about young people and the raising of young people, um, which I think is a reflection of some deeper stuff in our culture, this kind of fear-filled parenting that we hear about, right? Um, most of, uh, a lot of people here don't have kids, but I'm sure that you've heard uh, decades ago, right, uh, four and five-year-olds went to play in the forest together, right? Seven and eight-year-olds could build their own like tree houses, uh, and now parents feel this overwhelming obligation to be in control, to survey, to know where their kids are at all times, or something's going to go horribly wrong, despite the fact that statistically those kids are safer than ever. I, I personally, for a while, kind of thought that that was one of those ideas that like gets a lot of clicks but isn't actually a thing, you know, that it's just one of those things that we like to talk about. Until last year, um, I did a 40 coffees for 40 days. Every day for Lent, I met a new person. Um, I wanted to meet strangers in my neighborhood. And the first four people I met were moms who were on anti-anxiety medication 
because of how obsessed they had become with the idea that something terrible might happen to their children. That's not a coincidence. That's not a one-time thing. That's something in the air that's eating away at all of us. This sense of fear that we have about our lives and our circumstances. The scientists would say, right, that it's because of how we came to be. Uh, humanity <laughs> has evolved these very sensitive alarm bells, right, for a context in which we no longer live. Our whole bodies, our sweat, our muscles, our uh, feelings of I need to go or I need to stay or I need to pretend to die are set off by small things because if, you know, the noise was a tiger, that would be super important information. If that noise was a person trying to kill us, that would be super important information. But we live in a time now where we're surrounded all the time by alerts and alarms. Every time we log on to Facebook, every time we get into the newspaper, every time we get into a magazine, we hear about a new horrible thing that could potentially could happen to us. And so the list of our fears gets added to, and fear becomes the way of the world and the way of life. And we forget that while fear can be important and fear is a part of a healthy emotional life, fear isn't the only thing going on. Fear isn't the only response to have to the world. Whenever I'm thinking about um, a deeply felt, a deeply held emotion like fear, like anxiety, I turn to the Psalms as we have turned today because the Psalms, um, some of you may never have read them before. Some of you may have grown up reading one a day. The Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. The Psalms are the place where we put our poetry and poured out our lyrics. The tunes have been lost, but the lyrics are there. Um, to sing the songs of what was happening to us. Uh, some would say that David wrote every single Psalm. Probably not. Spoiler. Um, probably not. Probably it was written by a lot of different people over a lot of different time. But what they all hold in common um, is that they were people following God who felt something deeply and it just couldn't be expressed through any other way. And so they wrote a song or they wrote a poem um, and there are psalms of incandescent joy about the universe, right, that talk about the beauty of the stars the miracle of the sun, and there are psalms that talk about the depths of sadness that we can feel. They say that we eat bread of tears, that our bones are dry. They are evocative of that blue, blue space we live in sometimes. There are psalms of fiery and righteous anger that gives no truck to the idea that the target of anger might not be the worst thing that's ever happened in the world, right? Um, this is where we get the scary stuff of the Psalms, the dashing of, of people on rocks and all that. Um, and we get Psalms of fear. Because what the Psalms are in the end is what our testimonies are. They're honest about all of what we feel, all of what we experience, and all of what gets hard when we're trying to follow God and live this mucky, messy life that goes wrong all the time. So we get Psalms like Psalm 23, which holds two things together 
that it seems like shouldn't or couldn't ever be held together. A recognition of the reality in the world of how bad things can get. Um, this is one where I prefer the King James translation, right? The, the old school, the valley of the shadow of death. This calls it the darkest valley, right? It recognizes how hard things can be and expresses conviction that goodness and mercy are real and God is here and God is with us. And it doesn't say that either one of those things cancels the other out, right? It's not that one makes the other not true. It's not that one makes the other okay or acceptable. It's that this is how life is. We walk through dark valleys, and yet we have a conviction that that dark valley is not the only thing out there. It is not the only thing that exists. And that is what allows us, in the midst of our fear, to say that as afraid as we may feel, as justified as our fear may be, we will fear no evil. It is this combination, this reflection of the full reality of our lives, I think, that has made Psalm 23 um, not only one of the most famous psalms, but one of the most famous pieces of the Bible ever. Um, it's all over the place, uh, you know, read solemnly in the background during a television show or a movie to give you a little flavor of depth and gravity. Uh, I, unchurched Hannah, um, knew Psalm 23 first through Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise, right? Um, which sounds funny, except that it is Coolio's doing exactly what the psalmist did. He's living in a really crappy reality and claiming claiming that there might be life there anyway. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at myself and realize there's nothing left. But still there's a beat. But still there are lyrics. But still there's something to do, somewhere to go next. We've been hearing some new protest music this week um, in light of the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, but also many, many others, women, children, and men, people of color, killed by... Uh, racist system and state, Rakia Boyd, Tamir Rice. Um, and one of those songs this week that I would commend to you is Jay-Z's Spiritual, <clears throat> which the most depressing thing about it is that uh, he wrote it a few years ago. I don't know if it was in the wake of Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown, but he wrote it a few years ago, and his manager encouraged him to release it, and he said, no, I don't want to release it quite yet, and I know that I don't have to because this is going to happen again. Right, let's sit with that. He just knew that it was going to happen again. Wouldn't be his last opportunity to release it. And there's a little intro part. Um, it's called spiritual, right? It's about his, his struggles. Is, uh, is the way that I respond to my fear with the spirits of alcohol, right? This is the way many of us have responded to, to fear and danger. With the spirituality of God, um, with a spirit of hope and anger to change my world. Um, but in the intro, he kind of does the same thing that Psalm 23 does. He says... Here's what's happening, something incredibly unjust and painful. And I trust God. There's not a logical solution. Those are just the two things. That's what's happening, right? And he says it in song. Because songs reach a part of us that nothing else does. Songs allow us to express a part of us that nothing else does. And so Psalm 23 allows us to live in our fear and acknowledge that that fear is not the only thing that's happening. 
This week I've been thinking a lot, a lot about fear. Because I have felt fear, right, in the news, but also because fear is a lot of what different people, uh, my friends, my family, people in the news have been expressing. In the wake of these deaths, as there are every time, an unarmed or unthreatening, usually black, sometimes Latino person is killed um, by uh, uh, <clears throat> an agent of law enforcement. I hear my family and friends who are people of color and especially those who are black talk about the fear that they have every day. Um, the fear that someone they love will be harmed for just being alive. The fear that you can't possibly know what actions of yours will be perceived as threatening um, by people steeped in a prejudiced culture that we've all built. Um, that you could be selling CDs or hanging out with your kid or playing and those things um, can get you hurt. It's an extraordinary amount of fear to bear. <clears throat> for your children and for those you love. And it's a fear that, while I hear it and I try to take it in, um, as a white person, I can never fully understand because I will never have to live with it. <laughs> the system doesn't work that way for me, right? I have a lot of trust. That's one kind of fear that we've been hearing about this week. Another kind of fear is the fear that my family and friends who are law enforcement officers of all races, right, and all cultural backgrounds, feel going in every day to work. There is a part of this job that is putting yourself deliberately into risky situations for the protection of others, and it's dangerous. And people who love people who are in that job are afraid, understandably, and after Dallas, right, justifiably. People who are uh, the police officers in Dallas and the transit officer were there to protect and work with a peaceful, I'm very glad that Abby pointed that out, even though it's wrong that she felt like she had to, um, Black Lives Matter protest. And they were killed. <clears throat> that fear is real too. And then there's another kind of fear, which is the fear that we hear as an excuse every time a police officer who has killed someone who was unarmed or unthreatening um, says when they are being um, prosecuted or held accountable, which was, I was afraid for my life. I was afraid for my life, right? So I had to do what I did. And I believe many of them. I believe that they were truly afraid. I believe that they were fearful. But here's where fear gets tricky. Because fear is real for all of us, and fear is painful for all of us. And we can connect along that, but not all fears are the same. Not all fears are as likely to happen as others. And fear can never be a justification for death. Feelings aren't lives. And so something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong in the system, something has gone wrong in the country, something has gone wrong in the world, um, when that feeling of fear is so pervasive that it's seen as allowing for an unacceptable rate of harm and death to our communities. 
I feel strange even saying this, even having to say this, but I want to just say it out loud because so many of our magazines and newspapers and television shows uh, tell the opposite message. Black people are not any scarier than other people. Even when they are tall, even when they are muscled, even when they are men. Black people are not any more violent, are not any more threatening than any other people who God has made, and they are no less vulnerable, and they are no less fearful than any other people who God has made, even when they are tall, and even when they are men, and even when they are big. It's pathetic <laughs> to have to say that out loud, and yet, and yet, much of the culture that we create and consume, much of the culture that these police officers in these uh, shootings have created and consumed would tell them the exact opposite lesson. And we haven't done anything about that yet. Which brings me to the last kind of fear that I've been thinking about the most this week. Um, we are a diverse community, this church, and so we're feeling all kinds of fear. Some of us are feeling the fear that we will be victimized and targeted um, for our race or for our job or for both, right? There are black law enforcement officers, I don't know if all of you saw the video of Nakia Jones this week, um, but who are living into a very complex experience. Um, and then there's a fear that we don't talk about, which is the fear of the people who aren't targets for victimization, but are everyday citizens of every race but mostly white. I'm going to mostly talk to my fellow white folks for a minute now. Because our fears are what have made the system the way that it is. And our fears are what allow it to stay the way that it is. Our fear of speaking up to our friends and our families about the reality of racism, even if it makes them mad at us, is what helps racism to perpetuate itself. Our fear of voting for people who aren't tough on crime enough, of not appearing to be sufficiently devoted to the jailing and punishment and punitive measures of the society that we live in, help to keep people unfree and in prison, help to justify systems that exist in all of our city where someone can be stopped 50 to, six to, 50 to 60 times over the course of their life for having done nothing but be alive, as long as they are a person of color. Our fear of risk and vulnerability has allowed us to create a state where um, violence is excused all the time, where guns are seen as needed to proliferate rather than to be limited. Our fear of more taxes has led to an untenable situation here in Chicago where uh, we won't fund for there to be more police officers to create relationships with communities. We won't fund de-escalation training, right? We won't fund a proper living for our police officers, but our fear of the other uh, funding the American war machine will allow for dozens of tanks to be given to the few officers that are left to police streets uh, that are too big of a beat for them, right? We have made those choices. 
not individual police officers, not individual racists, although both of those exist, but us as a nation, as a community, and particularly um, the majority white people who have refused to hear the voices of people of color who have been telling us for generations before cell phone footage that this needed to be changed, that there was a problem, that there was a deep sickness in our community. All of us are implicated. None of us are free from responsibility for making a world where all people can live with freedom, can walk around as who they are, cannot be afraid to live and to have joy and to celebrate, particularly the black people who have always been the biggest target of hatred and limitation and narrowing of life this country. It's on all of us, not just them, not just some of us. And it's on all of us to fix it. This is what it means to fear no evil. Fear no evil is different from see no evil, right? To see no evil would be to put on our blinders, pretend that everything was okay, that none of us had colleagues, right, who needed a little bit of a talking to about their attitudes, because it would be hard to address that, that none of us need to show up at a protest or call one of our legislators, because that would be hard, and that would take time, and that would feel different. One of the things that fear does to us is that it keeps us in paralysis. It keeps us still. It convinces us that the way that things have been is the way that things always have to be. Um, that people always have to be at risk, that police officers and random people in the streets and black people always just have to keep dying, because that's just how it is. <clears throat> that's not how it is. We fear no evil. We believe in a God who is stronger than injustice. We believe that though we are in the valley of the shadow of death, there are things that we can do. There are ways that we can be. There is change that is possible for all of us and every one of us in all of our identities and in all of the places and all of the things that we are bringing to this fight. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. There are days when that line of the psalm feels like a gift and like a promise, and there are days when it feels like a cruel joke. But what's real about it What's real about it is that it doesn't say goodness and mercy will happen to us if we wait long enough for them to occur. Goodness and mercy will become the reality of the world as long as we just sit here and preserve our individual salvation. Goodness and mercy will follow us and goodness and mercy will call to us to change what we do and how we live and how we come together. The word um, follow in this case from the Hebrew would be much more accurately translated as pursue. Goodness and mercy will pursue us all of the days of our life. They will come after us, seeking us as God does, seeking for us to be different, seeking for us to be brave, seeking for us to believe in love and justice rather than fear and death as the order of the world. I'm thinking a lot about Diamond Reynolds, 
right? Diamond Reynolds, who watched her boyfriend bleed out next to her, watched him get shot in front of her four-year-old daughter, lavish in the back seat, and her response um, was to take out a camera, was to take an action, was to do something that she believed would lead to some tiny amount of knowledge or justice or reckoning for this act in the world. If Diamond Reynolds, in what she faced this week, can be brave instead of fearful, can act instead of remaining in stasis, so can we. So can every one of us believe in change and our responsibility for change rather than sticking to the ways of hatred and stasis that have become all too common in a culture of fear. Goodness and mercy are pursuing us. God is pursuing us. Love is pursuing us. We can pursue them back. For us, for our church, for our city, for our country, for our world, and for those who are made most vulnerable in it. The victims and the targets of hatred, the victims and the targets of gun violence, the victims and the targets of racism, who have shown extraordinary bravery, we can join them. <laughs> we can join them. And we can fear no evil. Because God is with us and God is calling us to do something bigger and better than what has been before. We pray in Jesus' name that we will find ways to live into that call.